For those of you who are joining us via live stream, um, good evening, and uh, I have the privilege of um, teaching through this lesson on the believer and necessity of prayer. So trust that the exegesis and FOF um, material was encouraging to you, as it was for me, and so uh, why don't we open us up in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening, this opportunity uh, to come uh, beneath your word and just to hear what you have to say to us uh, on this very important and necessary topic of prayer. Lord, we thank you that at the end of the day, uh, it is a gift from you to us so that we can communicate with you, we can um, express our dependence upon you, um, and we can um, give thanks to you for all things. Lord, thank you most of all for your Son, Jesus Christ, uh, through whom we have access to your throne of grace. And so, would you be with us? Would your Spirit help us to uh, to attune our hearts to yours and uh, just to really be edified uh, by what you have to speak to us from your word tonight? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, So, in his book on prayer, uh, J.C. Ryle opens up with this very simple question. And this question is, do you pray? It's both convicting and revealing because Ryle makes the argument that every true child of God, without exception, will pray. One of the major points of his book, which he supports using Scripture, is that the habit of prayer is a mark of a true Christian. In other words, if you don't pray, you might not be saved. He also presents the case that many people will say their prayers, but few actually pray. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, when we look around the world today, many unbelievers, including those who claim to be quote-unquote spiritual, profess that they pray. As an example, how many times have we heard people say or post on their Twitter feed, our thoughts and our prayers go out to you after some tragic event, such as the one that struck the campus of Michigan State this past week, or the massive earthquake that shook Turkey and Syria last week. Now, I'm not here to question the sincerity of their responses, but when we look to the Bible, we see that prayer is something altogether different than what most people make it out to be. While many, even in the church, treat it as a way to get what we want, Prayer is ultimately not about seeking our will, but His. As we read in our FOF book, the purpose of prayer is to express our submission to the sovereignty of God and our trust in His faithfulness. It is the means by which we express all that is in our hearts to our loving and wise Heavenly Father. And so it assumes a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His Son. So when we consider Ralph's question, do you pray, we first need to understand what prayer is according to His perfect and authoritative Word. And so that is the aim for us tonight as we look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. And if you were here last summer, one of our elders, Kevin Al actually preached on this exact passage. 
God's presence in our anxiety. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I would commend it to you. Also, during our anniversary last month, uh, Dan Na spoke on the topic of anxiety. And prior to that, Pastor Rick McLean walked us through Matthew chapter 6, again on anxiety. And the Lord has seen fit to repeatedly bring this issue to the attention of our church, and it's no accident. Hopefully none of you come tonight with an attitude of, I've heard this before, and simply lean on our own understanding. Instead, I hope we have come humbly to see our need to grow in trusting and submitting every area of our life to the sovereign goodness of our King, because we belong to Him. And if you're here tonight and you're struggling with anxiety, and I know some of you are dealing with some very stressful situations, whether it's in your home with your spouse or kids or in your place of work or school, let me begin by pointing us to Hebrews chapter 4.16, which I find to be one of the greatest encouragements in all of Scripture to pray. Turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. And if you're not presently dealing with anxiety, someone in your discipleship group likely is. So this exhortation to pray applies to you as well. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, we read, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But where do we find that confidence? The confidence to pray and trust that God cares and will provide His mercy and His grace. Perhaps not immediately or not in the manner that we expect, but that He will. Well, there's only one place that we can find that confidence. It's in the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let's God, let God's work, word speak to our hearts. Do not believe the lie of the devil. We are not alone in our battle against fear and anxiety, however big and whatever form it might take. Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be in our shoes, and there is great hope and comfort in that. But he not only sympathizes with us, As God who took on flesh, He walked as one of us, suffered, ultimately died on the cross for our sins and rose again, so that through His life, His death, and His resurrection, and by our faith in Him, we might have the ability to overcome our anxieties as He did through His appointed means of grace. So tonight, as we consider the necessity of prayer in our lives as believers, And if there's nothing else you take away from tonight, I want us to see how it was exemplified, lived out, and fulfilled by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If I can have my first slide, 
there. So if I can provide a little bit of background to the book of Philippians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. He writes during his first imprisonment in Rome around 60 to 62 A.D. And it's part of what we call the prison epistles along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. The church in Philippi was a congregation he was familiar with. Paul had visited several times since he initially established the church on his second missionary journey, as recorded in Acts chapter 16. So he knew their names and their situation and even their struggles. And specifically in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, he addresses an internal disagreement between two ladies in the church. But throughout the letter, he also acknowledges the suffering and persecution that the church was experiencing due to the gospel. This was a church that was near and dear to the heart of Paul. In chapter 1, verse 7, we read, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. And the Apostle Paul proved his love toward the Philippians by praying for them on a regular basis, even as he was under house arrest in Rome. Now, as we come to our passage in Philippians 4, 4 through 9, we find it toward the end of his personal letter. And everything that comes before sets the context for what he writes here. Notice that there are six imperatives in our passage, including one that's repeated twice, rejoice. Now, what's the significance of a command? Why is it important to identify it as such? Well, at the end of the day, obedience is expected. Right? We're not simply to affirm or to acknowledge or appreciate a command, but to apply it and to practice it by faith. At the same time, we cannot gloss over the indicatives in our passage. There are three key truths or principles or promises that we are to believe and hold fast to, especially in our fight against anxiety. And they serve as the grounds and the basis and the motivation for our obedience, so that while they are distinct, they are not disconnected from the commands that are given. Well, let's read our passage, and I want us to maybe go back a little bit just to provide the context, and we'll start reading from chapter 3, verse 17. We read, Brothers... Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk, according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power 
that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the Word of God. Can I get my next slide? Well, let's look at our first command found in verse 4, rejoice. It says, rejoice in the Lord. And this latter phrase is a significant one, and it's repeated from verse 1 and verse 2, from chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul exhorts them to stand firm in the Lord and to agree in the Lord. Right? This is not a call to rejoice in our circumstances, nor is it just sucking it up, but an enduring, unshakable joy in our union and communion with Christ. It's entirely different from worldly happiness Anyone can have that when relationships are going well, when they have good health and money in their savings or 401k accounts. Biblical joy, on the other hand, is not dependent on anything external. And from the immediate context of our passage, we see that it's a joy that comes from knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are His and He is ours as the source of eternal joy. It is what compelled the Apostle Paul, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All that to say, only a genuine believer, those who are in Christ Jesus, can apply this command and experience this joy as a fruit of the Holy Spirit who indwells every true child of God. In fact, if you're not a Christian tonight, you cannot apply any of the commands found in our passage, nor can you be assured of any of their promises. Now, the Apostle Paul doesn't just exhort the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord, but to rejoice in the Lord always, not sometimes, not most of the time, 
Not when things are going well. Not when just when life is good. But even when suffering and under trial, as we see in chapter 1, verses 29 through 30, when under threat from the dogs, evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh, according to chapter 3, verse 2, when surrounded by many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, chapter 3, verse 18, rejoice in the Lord. And in case you didn't catch it the first time, again, I say, rejoice. Far from being a hypocrite, the Apostle Paul faithfully lived out these words, writing while imprisoned in Rome. He calls the Philippians to imitate his example of joy in the Lord. While the Apostle Paul was certainly an example worth emulating, he was merely following the preeminent example of Christ, the founder and perfecter of our common faith. According to Hebrews 12, verse 2, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Christ, we find every motivation, encouragement, and example, and grace to rejoice in the Lord always even when others revile us and persecute us and utter all kinds of evil against us falsely on His account. Instead of being overcome by fear and anxiety, we can thus testify to the power of the gospel and the fruit of His Spirit in our lives. The question we need to ask ourselves is, is your life characterized by an abiding and abounding joy in the Lord? Is your life characterized by this abiding and abounding joy in the Lord? Well, there's a second command, and that's let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If I can have my next slide. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Verse 5. Now, this is not just to some, but to all people, not just to the people at church, but also to the people in your workplace and school. Not just to friends, but also to strangers and enemies. Not just to those outside your home, but also to those in your family. The Apostle Paul writes, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is to be our reputation, our character and testimony, to believers and unbelievers alike. Again, it is given as a command. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, the Greek word for reasonableness is epiekis, and it's an interesting one. It's found nowhere else in Scripture, and it can be translated in many different ways, including gentleness and forbearance. There is an element of graciousness and humility. It's the idea of being willing to accept less than your due and not insisting on your rights or demanding what you deserve. Well, this description should bring to mind our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his, it is his graciousness toward us, even when hated and ill-treated by those whom he came to save, that serves as the standard for the way we are to treat one another. Thus, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippians to have this very mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are called to imitate the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Continuing on, our set of imperatives is interrupted with a simple but significant phrase. The Lord is at hand. Now, this is not a command, but a statement of truth. But it's not just a statement of truth. It's the basis for the commands that precede and follow. To rejoice always, to be gracious to all, and to be not anxious about anything. Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand, or it's translated, the Lord is near in the NASB, speaks to the attribute of God's imminence and His presence with us. While He is transcendent, meaning He's enthroned in heaven, existing independently, altogether distinct, far above and apart from all that He has created, He is also present with us. Jeremiah 23, 23 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Well, this is especially true of him to those who are his redeemed. Through the work of Christ on the cross, he promises us a personal and intimate relationship with Him forever. Implicit is the fact that He knows and cares for us as our loving Father. He is indeed with us and for us. And we need to etch this truth on our hearts because it is only to the degree that you and I live in the conscious presence of the Lord that we can experience true joy in all circumstances, that we can be gracious to everyone, and that we can be free of anxiety. So then, are we living our daily lives as if this were true, that the Lord is Emmanuel, God with us? This leads us to our next imperative, if I can have my next slide. Because the Lord is near and because He's at hand, we are not to be anxious about anything. Literally, uh, in the original, it says, be anxious for nothing. And, And the word for nothing is translated literally as nothing. And as we read that, we recognize that there is a wide gulf between God's standard and will for us and the reality of our lives. There are many things that trouble and worry us. Work, school, children, 
parents, spouses, health, finances. We worry about the past. We worry about the present. We worry about the future. We get anxious not just over what actually happened yesterday or what is happening in our lives today, but also over what can possibly happen to us tomorrow. Temptation to fear and anxiety abounds, yet for the believer, there is every hope in God's Word. For no temptation has overtaken us, but such as is common to man. And God is not only near, but He is also faithful. But in what way? It says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to bear, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. But there's a question. How do we find that way of escape when we're tempted to worry or grow anxious? When spiritually we feel like we're trapped inside a building that is set on fire, how do we find that exit door? Well, our passage reminds us that, as we learned in our last FOF lesson, God has given us everything that we need to lead holy and fruitful lives, full of joy and grace and free of worry. But how? Well, it's through the ministry of His Word and prayer. And we see this in our next set of imperatives. Be anxious for nothing, but instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. At the end of the day, prayer is not rattling off a list of things we want to God, as many kids and even some adults will do with Santa Claus. It is entrusting our entire lives to Him. And nothing is too small or insignificant to bring before His throne of grace. It is to live not only in His conscious presence that the Lord is at hand, but also in conscious dependence on Him. To express our need for Him in some things? No, it says in everything, by prayer and supplication. Whether we recognize it or not, the reality is that all men, believers and unbelievers, are dependent on the one true God. In Acts 17, verse 28, it says, In Him we live and move and have our being. And in Hebrews 1.3, we are told that Christ upholds and sustains all things by the word of His power. So the question is not whether we are dependent on Him. It's whether we acknowledge and express our dependence on Him through prayer. But there's another reality. God already knows our requests, what we need, or what we want. In Psalm 139, verse 4, King David writes, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The one to whom we pray is omniscient. But there's also a third reality. God is completely sovereign, and He works all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. So then why pray? 
If our God is sovereign, if He's omniscient, and we are dependent on Him anyways, why should we pray? Well, John MacArthur says this, God not only ordains the ends, that is the results, but also the means, the methods. And one of the means that He ordains is prayer. By praying, we are not changing God's mind as much as we are aligning ourselves with His will. By praying, we are being used by God to bring about His will in the world. Beyond that, it also gives Him glory by demonstrating our dependence on Him, end quote. In other words, God is glorified when His people express their trust and faith in Him through His appointed means of grace to carry out His sovereign purposes. And whether we eat or drink or pray or whatever we do, we are to do all to the glory of God. But not only is God glorified, we are also spiritually edified through prayer. And we see this in the promise given in verse 7. If I can have my next slide. Let's read what it says. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And God will fulfill your requests as you intend. Is that what it says? No, the promise attached is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But sadly, that's how we often treat prayer in our lives. If I could use an analogy, it's like pushing a button on a vending machine and expecting God to give us exactly what we want, whether it's a candy bar, a soda, a spouse, or a job. But that's not how prayer works. And we see the love of God in this. He knows our hearts better than you and I do. And as Augustine once said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless or anxious until they rest in you. So always giving us what we want is not loving or best. And parents, you know this with your own kids. Nor does it address the heart of our fears and our anxieties, which is ultimately a lack of trust and faith in Him. Instead, He promises us something exceedingly better, His supernatural peace and presence, which is the only lasting remedy for all of our anxiety. When we look to the example of Christ, as He prays in anticipation of the cross, we see the beauty of our Savior. If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And I'll read starting at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, that is, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, 
sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, what do we see in this passage? Well, just as he tells Peter to watch and pray, Jesus is praying that he himself would endure the trials and sufferings that he is about to face. It is true that we will never understand Christ's suffering on the cross. But to say that he will never understand our trials and our weaknesses and our struggles is a lie. For three times he prays to the Father that he might let this cup pass from him. Why three times? Was it that he would not take no for an answer? Well, through prayer and supplication, Christ was aligning himself with the Father's will. He was entrusting himself to him who judges justly, 1 Peter 2.23, ultimately submitting to his sovereign will. He's saying, the path before me is not easy, so help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. Help me to trust you. And what is the result of Christ's prayer? Well, we know that the Father does not remove the cup, but instead grants him supernatural strength and peace. In the parallel passage found in Luke chapter 22, we are told that an angel was sent from heaven to strengthen Jesus so that he might endure the cross for the salvation of those who would place their faith in Him. And brothers and sisters, we can find so much encouragement and strength for our prayer life in Christ's. Rather than resisting the Father's will or insisting upon His own, Jesus prayed that the Father would empower and strengthen Him to finish what He came to accomplish for us. In the moments when we feel anxious, weak or vulnerable. We can look to Christ's example to pray for the mercy and to pray for the grace we need to trust Him. Yet not my will, but your will be done. 
Returning to our passage in Philippians, the Apostle Paul gives us a specific condition for our prayer and supplication in the middle of verse 6. It says, with thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but I find it curious that the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write down the word Eucharistias. Instead of with thanksgiving, maybe I would have expected the word peace day, by faith. Not that it's any less true that we might, must exercise faith in our prayers. But it is in everything and with thanksgiving that we are to make our requests known to God. Why? Well, I believe it's because anxiety and thanksgiving can never dwell in one's heart at the same time. Right. Tell me the last time your heart was overwhelmed with gratitude to God for who He is, what He has done, and what He promises to do. Where was your anxiety? Or think about the last time you were worried, anxious, or fearful about something. How thankful were you to Christ for your salvation, for His boundless mercies and abundant grace toward you? While anxiety causes us to look inward, Thanksgiving lifts our gaze upward. And the promise of God to His children is that for all who would present their requests to Him by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, His peace would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So then, will we take Him at His word? Moving on, we find two more imperatives in Verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, we won't spend nearly as much time on these verses, but the main point I want to highlight from them is that prayer, as God's provision for our anxiety, is always connected to His Word. Not just in hearing His Word, but in meditating upon and obeying it. Look with me again at the description found in verse 8. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, we are to think about these things. These very things are what the Philippians had learned and received and heard from the Apostle Paul and had seen applied in his life. Well, what are these things? Is it some abstract, mystical, or metaphysical knowledge of God attained through elevating one's mind to a higher spiritual state? representative of Gnosticism back then or the New Age practices today? No, these things are the revealed, objective, unchanging, and sufficient Word of God. Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, Rejoicing the heart, 
The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping or practicing them, there is great reward. So when you struggle with anxiety, what do you think about? And what do you practice? What do you meditate upon? And according to Scripture, the idea of meditating is not about emptying, but rather about filling our minds. So what are you filling your minds with? Is it the worries of this world, or is it the living Word of God? But not only meditating on God's Word, but how are you actively applying His Word in your life? According to James 1.22, we are to be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Prayer and His Word go hand in hand. We are to pray as His Word abides and richly dwells in us. And we are to obey His commands as we pray. And the promise attached to those who pray and meditate and obey His Word is His very presence with us. End of verse 9. And the God of peace, not just the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you. Again, we see this most clearly in the life of Jesus as he performed healings and miracles, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to all who would listen. His mind was perpetually fixed upon doing the Father's will according to his word. John chapter 4, verse 34, as the disciples were urging Jesus to eat, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He lived a life of total obedience and submission to the Word of God in conscious dependence upon His Father. In doing so, He fulfilled all righteousness so that through His life and death and resurrection, we who had been created for God's glory and are now in Christ Jesus might be redeemed to live in such a way, to trust and to obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that is the essence of the Christian life, isn't it? That as we trust and as we obey, the promise is that His peace, which surpasses all understanding, and His presence will be with us forever. Well, there's so much more that can be said, but in closing, if I can help sort of connect the dots for us, and if I can have my final slide. In our last FLF lesson, we looked at John chapter 14, focusing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who's called the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who indwells every believer, teaches and aids us in interpreting the truths found in His Word so that we might walk in it. We learned in our lesson this week that He also helps us in our weakness, interceding on our behalf according to the will of God when we do not know what to pray for. Now, previous to that, we considered what expository preaching and listening is. 
Essentially, it's the ministry of the Word, which is necessary and sufficient for our lives, and with which He has always shepherded His people from the very beginning of time. Tonight, we saw how God invites and encourages His children to approach His throne of grace through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, to cast all our burdens, our worries, and concerns on Him through the ministry of prayer because He cares for us and desires to give us His presence and His peace. And in our next lesson, we'll see how the ministry of the local church through fellowship and worship is also His gracious provision in our lives. That as members of His household, we might stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another as we await the return of Christ. What do we lack that we need? Truly, our Heavenly Father has not left us wanting, but has richly blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and with everything we need for life and godliness. So let us walk by faith, applying every means of His grace so that we might show this world how great a God and King we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight, just the testimony of the truth that it contains. Lord, that you graciously pour out your love and your gift to us through Christ, that we can enjoy communion and fellowship with you through prayer, that we can express our love, our gratitude, our dependence upon you every moment of every day because, Lord, you have given us everything that we need in Christ. And so we are not lacking, Lord. We are not wanting. We have everything. And so help us to live with that truth in mind that there would be an unshakable joy that is reflected in our lives, that we would live in a manner that extends grace to all around us, and that we would live free of anxiety, trusting you, not just for you to give us what we want, but to trust you, believing that your peace and your presence is promised to us. Lord, thank you that you are such a gracious Father who loves to pour your best out to us. So help us to be humbled, help us to be thankful, and help us to live in light of what we heard tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.